Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. It's an election year, and so we've spent a lot of time arguing about who the next president should be. But the deeper question is, what should the presidency be? What was it created to be in the first instance, and what has it become? That's the subject of a fascinating new book titled The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers. The author of this book is Professor Sikrishna Bangalore Prakash of the University of Virginia Law School, and he is our guest today. Sai, welcome. Great to be with you, Adam. This is a fascinating book, and I'm so glad that you're able to join us today to discuss it. Let me begin with a pretty basic question. In our Constitution, Congress is listed as the first branch. But in day-to-day government, what is our first branch of government? Adam, when you're interacting with the federal government and trying to secure your benefits or you receive a draft notice or what have you, it's really the executive branch. The executive branch is the one that spends the money appropriated by Congress. It's the one that fights our wars. It's the one that makes sure the veterans get their benefits. And it's the one that sends out your social security check. You know, we all, we've come to think of this oftentimes as a, a change in position, that when we had our first, our initial Congress, our initial administration, Congress truly was the first branch of government. But I have to say, you know, an earlier guest on this podcast a few months ago was Lindsay Chervinsky of the White House Historical Association, and she has a new book out on the cabinet, George Washington's first cabinet. When you read the histories of, of the first cabinet, some of the recent books on the first Congress, it seems to me that the presidency has always played, I think it's fair to say, the central role in American government. Is that, is that fair to say, or am I being uncharitable to Congress? Well, I think, you know, if you read the Federalist Papers, Hamilton says that, you know, the definition of a good government is one that executes its laws. And without that execution, it's no government at all. So I think the executive branch is no doubt important, but I think it's executing the laws of Congress. And so Congress is important as well. I don't think it's the case that the the presidency, even at the founding, was, you know, the dominant institution. I think it appears that way because the presidency is always doing things. It's always in existence. There is no there is no session of the presidency that ends and he's never off duty. And it's far easier for us both today, but also thinking about the past to focus on one person rather than thinking about all the members who are in Congress and how they voted on a bill. We, it's hard to do that today. It's impossible to do that from the first Congress. So it's it's natural that the presidency has this outsized role in our minds. It's always been that way, I think, even at the founding. But I don't think Congress was a potted plant in the 18th century. We'll get back to the 18th century in just a little bit. But why don't we go to the the title of your book, this provocative title, The Living Presidency. Why don't you just describe for us the basic argument that your book makes about this living presidency? I, I gather that's a reference to the living constitution. It's a melding of two different ideas, Adam. It's the melding of the idea of a living constitution And then it's a counterpoint to the idea of an imperial presidency. So Arthur Schlesinger wrote this famous book in the 1970s, inspired or that arose in the wake of the Nixon administration. And his argument was that the presidency had become imperial, had taken on powers that weren't properly executive or weren't author, you know, weren't allocated by the Constitution. And he decried this. And of course, it was quite influential and remains influential today. And it's sort of standard fare that the presidency is has more authority than it did in the past. He was a progressive and he favored the idea of a living constitution, but he opposed the imperial presidency. And so what I did in the book was basically try to think about this stance, one that says, of course, the constitution must, the meaning of the constitution must evolve over time, even without a formal amendment, but the presidency needs to be in amber, right? It needs to be in stasis. It can't change over time. Or more sophisticatedly, There are some people who think, gee, it's really great that we can make treaties in all sorts of new ways. That wasn't true in the 18th century. But gee, it's absolutely terrible that the president can wage war without congressional authorization. And then they cite the framers for that proposition. So, you know, one of the goals is to get progressives to rethink their commitment to the living constitution, because as I argue in the book, the presidency is the single most important, most significant agent of change when it comes to the future trajectory of constitutional law. Well, then let's go back to the beginning of it all. And in your book, you describe these as kingly beginnings, the point that so much of the presidency from its very beginning seemed to reflect 
the powers of a king, even though that was downplayed. There's a wonderful line in the book. You say, you ask the question, why can't we see the presidency's resemblance to a monarchy? So what were the, what was the presidency's kingly beginnings? So the way to think about the original presidency, Adam, is to not imagine that it was written in 1776, right? If you read the declaration in 1776, you see an indictment of the English crown. And it's natural to think at that time that they'd create weak executives. And that's exactly what they did in the States. But when you flash forward more than a decade into 1787, they were facing different problems. And the problem they faced was legislatures that were exceeding the bounds of their authority, (laughs) that were violating individual rights, that were usurping executive and judicial powers. And in that context, many of the folks who gathered in Philadelphia came to the conclusion that they needed a stronger executive. They needed to be stronger in several respects. The executive needed to be singular rather than plural. A lot of these state executives were plural and therefore weaker in a branch disputes. They needed an executive with a veto. Most of these state executives did not have a veto. They gave the the president a pardon power of the sort that most state executives lack. And then, of course, this executive has foreign affairs authorities of the sort that state executives did not have. And they gave this executive a salary protection, but also four-year terms, which were far longer than anything in the States, and this president was perpetually eligible for re-election, right? He could serve for life. And so when you put all those things together, it's a super strong executive compared to any American executive that predated it. And that's precisely why people like Adams, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and even foreign monarchs said, you've got a king under the title of president, right? It's a king in all but name. You know, I'm so glad you alluded to the discussion in the Federalist earlier about the administration of laws. This is something I find myself coming back to over and over again. Is that line, you know better than me, there's a Federal 68 where he says the true test of a good government is its tendency to produce a good administration. And Hamilton even comes back and he quotes himself a few papers later, I think it was Federal 76. He says right there in the middle of, you know, I guess the end of the Federalist, that this is the true test of government, is administration. I don't know if that would have been Madison's view, but it was certainly Hamilton's. And I think that the way you've, you framed this argument and in the way you, these points in which you're, you're beginning in the book and here today really highlight that. I mean, even in the Declaration of Independence, obviously the, the, the opening passages are so famous, we think about those, but the back half of the Declaration is as much a criticism of the king's lack of governance as it is, is overbearing governance. It was both of those things, but the lack of governance is there as well. And it's the sort of thing that informed Madison's writing of of the vices and so much of the Federalist. So they created a a powerful presidency. But as you you add in the book, they also gave the president all the tools that, that he needs to acquire additional constitutional authority. And I suppose that's the, the arc of the, of the rest of the book, isn't it? That's exactly right, Adam. The way to think about the Constitution is it's fighting the last battle. The last battle is not, you know, the war against Great Britain. The last battle is the state legislatures exceeding the bounds of their authority and the need to create a bulwark or a counterweight against that. And that's the executive. There are people who look at the executive and say it's too powerful. Edmund Randolph, the Virginia governor, says it's a fetus of a monarchy. And of course, the anti-federalists are complete, you know, repeatedly saying that it's a monarchy. And they're they're saying in a bad sense, they're not just making an observation, they're criticizing it. And, you know, that there are people who are worried that the president will use the army to take over the country. But, you know, when you create a unitary executive and you oppose it or you put it next to a bicameral Congress, it becomes harder for that bicameral Congress to check the unitary executive because the unitary executive is able to act with speed and decision. And, and Congress is not designed to be an institution that acts speedily and you know that takes for, forceful action. And so I don't think they fully thought through what a bicameral Congress would mean for the executive. That decision was sort of based on a compromise, right, to, to placate the small states and placate the big states. But it had this sort of ancillary feature that wasn't, I think, fully thought through. Getting back to shortly after the founding, when when Hamilton and and Madison were having their famous Pacificus and Helvidius debates, there's a line in there that I refer to. I refer to it ad nauseum. My my research assistant, Elaine, is probably sick of me quoting it. But what Hamilton says in in his first paper, he's talking about the foreign powers over foreign relations and diplomacy. He says that while the executive can't control the legislature, the executive, in the exercise of, of his constitutional powers, 
quote, may establish an antecedent state of things, which ought to weigh in the legislative decisions. He's describing what we call a first mover advantage, where a president can take action, and it really affects the terrain on which the rest of governance happens. Obviously, in the courts, that's often been studied, you know, the laws falling silent in wartime, but also in his relationship to the legislature, the president just has this natural energy and power, not just in the administration of law, but in seizing the initiative in a way that really shapes the government itself. And you describe that in the book as, as in effect, amending the Constitution through his exercise of powers. Your quote from Hamilton is an arresting one, and I think it's an interesting one to think about how it plays out in various contexts. But you're right. In the book itself, I argue that presidents claim authority based on the acts of prior presidents. What they're doing is, you know, they're reading the gloss that life has put on the Constitution to quote a Justice Felix Frankfurter in the Youngstown case. And the idea is if sort of practices make the Constitution, practices can unmake or amend the Constitution. And, you know, the executive branch officials, including lawyers, are very much apt to say, hey, I'm just doing what's been done before. Which is an interesting point, and it's you know certainly useful to know. You might not think it's dispositive of the legal question, but it's often taken to be dispositive of the legal question. And certainly that's precisely the argument that Frankfurter is making, right? That if presidents have done something repeatedly, we, the courts, are going to recognize it as constitutional, whatever the original meaning of the Constitution might have been. And so the, the most prominent area where this is true is war powers, but it's it's also true with respect to treaty making, and I would argue increasingly true with respect to law execution or law amending or law twistification. Well, let's go through each of those three then. You, you lay them out. We'll start with, you describe the move from first general to declarer of wars. So this is the president's war power. How is What's the story of, of the life of that aspect of the president's powers? So I think the phrase declare war is lost on most people today. They think it's some document that has particular words, the words declare war. But in fact, the idea of declaring war predated the Constitution, of course. And in the 18th century, one could declare war by word or by deed. Now, the words are obvious, right? If you issue some document that says we're going to wage war or we declare war, you have declared war. But more common in the 18th century was the commencement of warfare as a declaration of war. And this is lost to us, but in the 18th century, most wars were not first begun with a declaration. The combatants just started warring, and people would then say both sides have declared war. And so in the 18th century, you know, warfare itself, the initiation of conflict was a declaration of war, but other things that signaled that the nation wanted to wage war were equally declarations. So Indian tribes were described as declaring war whenever they scalped settlers. Barbary Coast states were described as declaring war when they cut down a nation's flagpole. Lots of situations involving sort of latent hostilities were described as a declaration of war. Sending home a foreign ambassador was considered a declaration of war because it signaled the time for peaceful parlaying was over. And so they just had a more functional understanding of the term in the 18th century. And then when you read the Constitution, the Constitution, I think, basically gives this decision to Congress. And so Congress has to vote by bicamerally, you know, has to vote bicamerally and then present to the president if it wants to declare war. And the negative implication is the president can't declare war himself, that the grant of two Congress is exclusive. And so the end result of the original constitution is the president can't take the nation to war because if he does, he is declaring war in contravention of the constitution's implicit denial of, of that authority to him. And then I think when you, you know, by the time you get to the 20th century, presidents are increasingly using force overseas. Military commanders are using force overseas, often in small targeted ways. There are earlier controversies like the Mexican-American War, which some Whigs think that Polk started unconstitutionally. But the big break is Truman, right? Truman decides to wage war on the Korean Peninsula against the North Koreans and then the Chinese. And he doesn't believe he has to go to Congress, and Congress doesn't call him to account for it. And he says, we're not at war, we're in a police action. And he's, I think, confusing eight, you know, sort of 20th century terminology where international lawyers thought they had banned war. And you know, thinking about the place of the UN and assuming that because the UN has authorized the use of force, 
that that's a substitute for Congress being involved? And the answer is, you know, the UN can authorize individual states to take certain actions, but it's not a means by which the United States can take action because the United States has its own rules with respect to the commencement of warfare. So Congress just doesn't declare war at the outset. They eventually obviously want to support the president and they provide funds. But if you can take the nation to war, as you just put it, the president has a first mover advantage and almost invariably gets funding from Congress once the first troops have marched in or the bombs have dropped. And ever since, Truman, we've had all kinds of wars started by presidents, some small and some large. Think of Kosovo, think of Haiti, think of Grenada, think of more recently Libya, right, which was a months-long bombing campaign initiated by the Obama administration. And so when I say in the book that the president has a parallel power to declare war, he has a parallel power to declare war as the Constitution uses the phrase, because he can initiate conflict, which in the 18th century would have been understood as a declaration of war. I'm kind of curious how far that initial point carries, where you said that the declaration of war wasn't necessarily an announcement, verbal announcement of war, but it could be done through actions. And one of the things you mentioned was the recalling of of, of the diplomats from the country. So are you saying that if President Washington had recalled diplomats unilaterally from a foreign country, that he would have been violating the Constitution's grant of the declaration of war power to Congress, because in effect, he would have been declaring war. Were were all presidents in the first instance restrained from taking that kind of action under the Constitution? The way I think about it, Adam, is what is the signal that the other side will likely take from the action? And so there actually is this very interesting discussion by John Quincy Adams in the 19th century where he hones in on your exact point, and he distinguishes some ambassadorial dismissals from others. And his basic dividing line is, does this signal to the other side we're about to fight? So the Washington administration wants the French administration to recall Genet, Citizen Genet, because they think Citizen Genet is getting involved in domestic politics. They make clear to the French that their request for the recall of Genet, which is effectively a dismissal by the American government, doesn't signal any hostility to the French government, it just signals an extreme dissatisfaction with Genet. And that's, just, that's precisely what John Quincy Adams says in the 19th century. If you make it clear that an ambassador of dismissal is not a prelude to war, there's no sense in which you're declaring war. But if the context is such that it signals that you're about to wage war, you are, in fact, declaring war. Now, I think this sense of ambassador of dismissals no longer holds true in the 20th or 21st century. So I don't think those acts today would be a declaration of war necessarily. I think it really turns on common conceptions of what is likely to follow after some act. So to give you one example, an English parliamentarian said it's the common law of Europe that when armies mass along a border and bake biscuits, they're about to invade. And that's a declaration of war. Now, if over time, you know, countries are constantly massing armies and not invading, it's less likely to be construed as a declaration of war, right? So I think it's sort of contextual. You know, I think they clearly would think a piece of paper that says, you know, we declare war is a declaration of war. Then again, if the president's issuing a joke piece of paper, no one takes it seriously. It's not functioning as a declaration of war, even though it has the words. So Reagan didn't violate the Constitution when he, he joked off the air on the radio that the bombing <laughs> commences in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. <laughs> Very funny joke. And no, he did not violate the Constitution. Glad we avoided that. The next topic then in the book sort of flows naturally from the war power. It's the power of diplomacy. You title the chapter from chief diplomat to sole master of foreign affairs. And it seems to me that the your choice of words must be an allusion to Chief Justice John Marshall's famous description of the president as the nation's sole organ in foreign affairs. So why don't you describe that evolution for us? Yeah. So the way to think about, I think the original executive in foreign affairs is the president had authority to send ambassadors, to receive ambassadors, and to make treaties with the Senate's consent. That's in the constitution specifically, but he also had other authorities by virtue of the vesting clause. Executive power in the 18th century had domestic components and foreign components. And the way to read the constitution is wherever the constitution does not grant executive or foreign affairs powers to Congress or check those foreign affairs powers, they rest with the president. And that's why the president was 
sort of the chief diplomat for the United States, why he received all communications and generated communications with foreign governments. You know, letters to Congress from foreign governments were routed to the president, and they weren't answered by Congress precisely because Congress itself understood the president as the organ of communication. And so, you know, the president could do that. He could he could dismiss American ambassadors. He could instruct them. He could request a dismissal, and I think dismiss foreign ambassadors. None of these things are specifically found in the Constitution, but they're part of this vesting clause. So the end result is the president has some significant authority in foreign affairs, but it's checked in a, way, a host of ways, right? He can't make treaties without the consent of a supermajority. He can't even send ambassadors without the Senate concurring. And he can't wage war, right, as I said earlier, without Congress authorizing it, which is a huge check on his ability to threaten other nations, coerce them, et cetera. In a sense, it's a dispersal of executive power across two institutions, right? Congress and the president, with the Senate having a unique role over two things. And I think over time, the trend has been for the president to acquire still greater authority in foreign affairs because the president, of course, has greater knowledge in foreign affairs. He has all these ambassadors and now a State Department. He has greater intelligence, right? The secrets that he has that, you know, that the rest of us don't have access to. And members of Congress are are largely parochial. They're not, you know, they're not focused on, as a general matter, on the nation's interactions with foreign nations. They're more focused on how their constituents are doing, which makes them disinclined to spend time to acquire expertise in foreign affairs. And so the end result is members of Congress and certainly foreign affairs is the purview of the executive. And that, of course, Congress will weigh in from time to time, but it's really mostly about executive authority. And that plays out in a number of interesting ways. The most prominent is the treaty power, which is a shadow of its former self, in the sense that there are very few treaties made these days pursuant to the treaty clause, which sounds like we're disengaging from the world. But the reality is we're still making tons of agreements overseas. They're just bypassing the treaty clause. And they do so in two ways. One is the category of sole executive agreements the president can make on his own, pursuant to the grant of executive power, has expanded in time to cover more important agreements. And secondly, the president now makes treaties with foreign nations. Everyone sort of regards them as treaties, and they're about very important matters, with the consent of majorities in both chambers and Congress. And this describes NAFTA. NAFTA is a treaty on the international level, but domestically, it's called a congressional executive agreement. And it was do done this way precisely because President Clinton could not get two thirds of the Senate to concur with, but he could get, or he could try to get, a majority of both chambers. And so essentially, the president's evading the treaty clause in two different ways. One is getting no consent from any legislator, and that's the sole executive agreement. The other way, is getting majoritarian consent in both chambers rather than supermajoritarian consent. And this may not seem like a big deal, but of course, the Senate was designed to be an institution for states to use to check you know, the making of international agreements that might be detrimental to them. And anytime you have additional means of exercising authority, you make it easier for presidents to exercise that authority, right? So it's, it's not, I'm not making an argument that majoritarian consent to the ratification of a treaty is a bad idea. I'm just saying it's unconstitutional. Well, maybe a recent example of a Supreme Court case that raises interesting issues along this, these lines is the Zivotofsky litigation surrounding the president and Congress's respective powers over passports and, and over the recognition of foreign, foreign countries. How does that fit into the, to the themes that you're describing in this book on the president's diplomatic powers? It's a great question, Adam, and it's a very interesting case. Congress, by statute, had provided that passports and other official government documents would give individuals the chance to signal that they were born in Israel if they were born in Jerusalem. And so it was basically a way of currying favor with Americans who wanted to signal their view that Jerusalem was part of Israel. And the executive branch, both the Bush administration and the Obama administration, thought that they alone could decide whether Jerusalem was part of Israel as part of the so-called recognition power. And the recognition power is this idea in international law that nation states get to decide 
based on certain criteria, whether to recognize a new nation and then to recognize the government that heads up that new nation or an old nation, and then also to decide what boundaries for that nation they're going to recognize. And so the Bush administration's position and the Obama administration's position is we want Jerusalem to be the subject of negotiations, and we don't want to recognize Israel's claim to Jerusalem. So, you know, a young kid was born in, a young baby was born in Israel, in Jerusalem, and his parents wanted a passport that said he was born in Israel because he was born in Jerusalem. And the Bush administration said, no, we're not going to do it. And so the parents sued, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court a couple of times, but the court ultimately held that the president has an exclusive power of recognition, not from anything that's expressed in the Constitution, but from the idea that if you can negotiate treaties and you can receive ambassadors and send ambassadors, you must have authority to recognize foreign nations. And then they further concluded that you must have authority to decide their territorial boundaries for United States purposes. And then they looked at Congress's powers and they said, there's nothing in Article One that suggests that Congress can recognize nations. And so they held that the president has an exclusive power of recognition and that this statute, by trying to get the president to issue documents or the State Department to issue documents that said essentially that Jerusalem was part of Israel, was trying to encroach upon the president's constitutional powers. So that's the case in a nutshell. If it's okay for the president to resist that kind of assertion of authority by Congress, what would have been an overstep on his part in the area of diplomacy? Can you give an example, either historical example or a a hypothetical one? That's a great question. I mean, we can even use the diplomacy, the, the, the recognition power. And suppose the president wants to recognize, you know, Tibet as a country in a context where we think that that will almost certainly lead to a war. I think in the 18th century, they would have said, yeah, you have some recognition power, but you can't use it to usurp Congress's power to declare war. If you do that, you're basically enmeshing us into in a war. You're basically triggering an attack in the same way that saying I declare war would do so. So that that might tie back to the case. But I think I think that's a good example of where the president would be overstepping in the in the 18th century. I think in the 20th century, 21st century. Certainly, if the president waged war or, or, you know, insulted someone or, you know, did something that would trigger a war or actually, as I said earlier, you know, use troops, that too would be using his foreign affairs authority too broadly, right? The president gets to say things as president, as the chief diplomat, but there, there are some things he doesn't get to say. He can't, he can't say we're going to war because he doesn't have substantive authority to do that. And that's a statement that's likely to be construed as a definitive statement that we are, in fact, at war. And that would be, I think, unconstitutional. And you'll notice that even though the Office of Legal Counsel says that the presidents can wage war, they never say that the president can use the words, I'm declaring war on behalf of the United States. They still understand that that's forbidden, even if the substance is not. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I know basically nothing about war power or diplomacy. That's why I defer to my, my colleagues at AEI on, on, on national security and, and foreign and defense policy. But one issue I do care about and I've read a little bit about is the administrative state. And that's your third example. You describe the change in the presidency from dutiful servant of the laws to secondary lawmaker. And you describe both in, in the ways in which presidents choose to enforce the laws or not enforce the laws the way they exercise their their veto power in the lawmaking process, and then just more broadly, their administration of ever broader grants of authority. Presidents have made themselves not just lawmakers, but really the the primary lawmakers in in day-to-day life in America today. That's exactly right, Adam. And I think what's happened is there's a combination of influences and things that are shaping and reshaping the presidency. So You know, you can go back to the 19th century, the rise of campaign promises. Presidents make policy promises. A lot of those policy promises have to do with legislation. They're not about who they're going to pardon. They're about what new benefits they're going to supply, what tax cuts, what, you know, entitlement programs they're going to create. And that creates incentives for them to fulfill those promises once they're in office. They prefer a legislative solution but they're willing to pursue a unilateral administrative position. When you couple that pressure 
and the pressure that comes from the tremendous expectations of the office. Everybody thinks the president can do everything with things like the delegation of legislative power from Congress to the president with the Chevron doctrine, which I know you've, you know, a lot about, which, you know, reads statutes as delegating authority, even if they don't necessarily expressly do so with respect to the question at hand. I think the end result is that presidents are apt to twist statutes in various ways to accomplish those legislative promises and to satisfy the expectations of the public, but most especially their political base. And so I give examples in the book. Why did President Bush bail out the auto companies? There was no appropriation for it. Congress did not provide funds for it, but he did it anyway, I think, because he didn't want to be blamed for the collapse of the auto industry and the many associated businesses that service both the auto industry and the laborers in the auto industry. And then Barack Obama did the exact same thing, a massive violation of the Constitution, but not one many people cared about because it didn't have a political valence, right? If both parties are doing it, the only people who would criticize it would be libertarians. But I can, you know, I can give other examples, right? Obama subsidized the insurance companies, even though there was no appropriation for it. So the Obamacare statute, the ACA, authorized subsidies to insurance companies, but did not appropriate. The Obama administration went to Congress and said, you know, we'd like this money to subsidize these insurance companies. And the Republicans said, heck no, we're not going to do that. And then the Obama administration did an about face and said, well, we don't need you. We can just use the statute. We we were wrong. We have an appropriation in the statute. And of course, there was no and there was no appropriation. They spent the money and they were able to spend the money for years. It only ended when Trump came into office and, and declined to, to do so going forward. And, you know, the last example I'll give is the wall where President Trump has diverted funds from military construction accounts to the wall and he declared an emergency to do so. The interesting thing about that is he signed a bill in February of 2019 that gave him about a billion and a half dollars for the wall. He was unsatisfied with it. And the very same day, he declares a national emergency along the border and is able to avail himself of monies that turn on this declaration of a national emergency. And he's doing something that his predecessors have done. They've all done these faux national emergencies to access statutory authority. The reason why he got so much pushback is because it was so salient and it was so close to after he only got a billion and a half dollars and expressed dissatisfaction with it. And so it underscored the number of faux emergencies that we currently have that are really the president using authority that he merely finds useful, but encanting the magic words national emergency because that's what's required by statute. So the way to think about it is these statutes have all effectively been amended to say that where the president finds it useful or necessary, he can take advantage of various funds. He doesn't actually have to believe there's a national emergency. I'd say of all the examples you have in the book and all the other ones we could conjure up, in some ways, the most jarring one is the one that you you offer from President William Howard Taft. We would never normally think of Taft as an advocate for an expansive presidency. If anything, it's the opposite, because he's always discussed in contrast with his predecessor, T.R., but in the book, you describe the, the famous, should be famous, Supreme Court case, United States versus Midwest Oil Company, where Taft had unilaterally withdrawn certain federal lands from the, the oil leasing, oil development markets in the absence of any kind of statutory authorization. And the Supreme Court allowed this because even though the statute didn't authorize him to do this, it didn't forbid him from doing this. And it seems to me that if even President Taft is going to take such an expansive view of the presidency, then there seems little hope that, that we'll ever have a president who's going to have a narrow view. I mean, absent Calvin Coolidge walking back on stage. Yeah, that's that is a great example. I think what's you know, I think what's going on there in the Midwest oil cases, they they see the absurdity of the government essentially selling oil under cost and then buying it back at market cost. And so they, they think the Taft withdrawal order makes perfect policy sense. And they, they think that, you know, this has been going on for a long time. And so Congress sort of knows about it and hasn't stopped the practice, the practice of withdrawing land. And it's, it's, you know, the longer the practice is, the more 
the more apt we're to say there's something to the practice. The practice makes sense. And I, there's something to that. But there's a separate question of whether the practice is legal. It's like, so practices can be, you know, optimal, salutary, whatever your criteria is. They could be good, whatever criteria you're going to, you want to use. But they may not be legal. And, of course, once you decide that this, you know, practice makes perfect approach to statutes and the Constitution is the way you're going to think about the matter, it means that everything is up for grabs. It's not just the statute, you know, the statutes in Midwest oil. It's every statute and, of course, every part of the Constitution. And Justice Scalia used to like to joke that he wished he had a stamp that said stupid but constitutional. And I guess the other he needed the other stamp, which would have said smart but unconstitutional. Thinking about these three stories that you tell, these three areas of law, I think about a, a book from a few years ago by Adrian Vermeule. It was called Laws of Abnegation. And it was an argument for the administrative mm-hmm. state, but it was an argument of the inevitability of the administrative state. The idea that just the natural tendencies of modern society, modern government will inevitably push us in favor of an administrative state. I mean, you've surveyed all this history. You've studied it. Is the living presidency inevitable? Is it inevitable that if we would make reforms, we would come back to the same point? (laughs) Well, I don't think so. I I guess what I'd say is, you know, I think it's inevitable that if you want more regulation, you're going to need people who help the regulators come up with the regulations. But, you know, I think of the administrative state and I think, well, I think it's possible for these super smart people in these various agencies to promulgate draft rules that will then go to Congress and Congress can then enact them en masse. I understand that there's a lot of expertise in the administrative agencies that's not replicated in Congress, but that describes the executive branch writ large, right? That is to say, the executive branch has always had an informational advantage vis-a-vis Congress. That's why there's a State of the Union clause. The clause actually requires an ongoing relationship, an ongoing sharing of information. It's not about a speech given once a year that's just full of policy promises. So I think there's always been, you know, there's always going to be people outside of Congress that know more than members of Congress. And it's a little ironic that when Congress has moved to being a full-time institution, that it still claims it doesn't have time to think about all these regulations that are being imposed in its name pursuant to delegations. So, I mean, Adrian, you know, is brilliant and, and super smart. But I don't I don't think, you know, I don't think what we need is we necessarily need all these laws to be made in the agencies as opposed to Congress basically ratifying them. And I think what that would how that would work out is they would not ratify the most controversial ones and ratify, you know, the vast bulk of the uncontroversial ones. And that to me makes sense. If you're coming up with some regulation that you can't get through Congress, maybe the regulation is a bad idea or at least it doesn't have the stamp of legitimacy that comes from Congress. I mean, I haven't studied administrative law in other countries. And so maybe what Vermeule is saying is that every nation has this bureaucracy that not only generates proposals, but actually generates laws. You know, maybe that, if that's what he's saying, then it's an empirical question. But I don't, I don't regard Congress's relative ignorance vis-a-vis the agencies as an argument for allowing the agencies themselves to make laws as opposed to Congress making them. Let's hope that reform isn't futile because you offer, as you put it, a baker's dozen of reforms. And on this podcast, we don't have time to get to all of them, but they range from everything from sunsetting emergencies to narrow the delegations of power to the president. If you could pick one or two that you think are, are the most urgently needed, what would they be? I think that Congress probably needs to bulk up staff-wise. I think having staff helps them deal with the executive branch in a way that's not true today. I I think in the book, I describe how the Republican revolution of, I don't know, was it 94, where Gingrich and co. come into office, they cut the staff. And I think that's actually weakened Congress in interbranch disputes because they don't have enough people with longevity or knowledge in in dealing with interbranch disputes. It doesn't make sense to beef up the executive branch year after year and cut your own troops. I think that would be useful. It's not obvious because it's not substantive. It's more sort of procedural in a way, but I think it would be useful. I think if you really wanted to constrain executive war making, something like the reform I discussed in the book would be useful. Basically telling presidents there's going to be some cut in a program that you favor 
if you want to wage war. An alternative would be to give the president a some short license to wage war, after which the authority would expire. That's how the War Powers Act is actually read, but that's not what the War Powers Act actually says. It doesn't give a 60-day hall pass. I think there are ways to deal with emergencies that are respectful of the separation of powers. And so temporary emergency authority, if you want to, temporary war-making authority still gives Congress the ability to make the important decisions. But as you said, I've got a bunch of suggestions there, and it's hard hard to pin down one. I think they're all great, Adam. I think Congress should seriously consider all of them. Well, I'm glad you love all of your children equally. The one that jumps out at me the most, I think it's the most crucial, is the first one. You say, check the president's principal advisors, and, and you're referring to the Senate's role in granting or withholding advice and consent for the president's appointment of officers. I think this is crucially important and really undervalued in the current debates. What we've lost by the Senate really losing interest in the president's staffing of his administration. And we referred earlier to Hamilton's assertion that you know the best test of our constitution is is its tendency to produce good administration. And part of what he was talking about right there in Federal 76 was the need for the Senate not to be overbearing and not to micromanage appointments, but to be there as a real check to prevent the president from staffing up his administration with, wish I had the line handy. It's one of my, my favorite lines there where, where, where Hamilton refers to the president appointing, I think he said, obsequious instruments of the president's own pleasure, something like that. <laughs> and you see in, in modern government, I mean, just in the last few years, I mean, you and I can both agree that judicial appointments are crucially important. And to the extent that the Senate and the president can get good judges appointed, that's a great thing. I think that at least. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, one time Senate Majority Leader McConnell gave an interview and he said, you know, if I have to choose between giving floor time to a judge with a lifetime appointment and giving floor time to the nomination of somebody who's going to be an undersecretary of commerce for the next year and a half, well, it's an easy choice. And I suppose it is, but something is lost when the Senate not only loses interest in the appointment, the staffing of the administration, but loses interest in really pressing the president to staff up an administration the right way. And if of all the recommendations you have here, I think maybe the crucial, most crucial one is the reemergence of the Senate as a body that's really invested in administration. But I wonder if that's even possible, given that the bonds of partisanship really do just align the, the president's party in, in the Senate, to just kind of go along with what the president wants and the other party to focus more on, you know, bashing the president in oversight hearings, but but without really investing itself as a partner in administration. I mean, I think this is an important reform that the reform has two components. I think they need to actually pare back the number of positions that are subject to advice and consent because they just bog down their time. I, I think McConnell is on to something, the assistant secretary for commerce or the assistant secretary for procurement in the Department of Commerce should not be an advice and consent position. There are a lot of these positions that yeah. reflect old perceptions of importance, but may not reflect modern, you know, the sort of up-to-date conceptions. And it's a question of comparative importance. The chief of staff is far more important than the assistant commerce secretary. And the White House counsel is far more important. And you can include them and cut off a bunch of other people and save yourself time and focus on the folks who really matter. You know, they, they could not get Susan Rice through the Senate for Secretary of State, so they made her National Security Advisor. I don't want to comment on her qualifications or whether she was, she should have been the National Security Advisor, but it's crazy to think that that's a less important position, right? Henry Kissinger ran the foreign policy of the United States as National Security Advisor. That's an incredibly important position. And of course, the Chief of Staff is just the same sort of position. It's incredibly important. And a lot of decisions in the departments are actually made in the White House by people like the chief of staff who speak on behalf of the president. So there's a mismatch between what's the officers that are truly important and the folks the Senate is spending its time on. And, you know, you're better off focusing on 100 people than on a thousand because you just can't do a job on a thousand and it just diverts your attention from the people that really matter. Well, like I said, we can't do justice to all the recommendations you make. So that's a, one more good reason for our listeners to buy the book and read it. Why don't we end with a couple of big picture questions? 
thinking through everything that you've described here, I wonder if maybe if we as a nation had it to do over again, one of the solutions would be to go back to the beginning and put more specific content in Article 2 of the Constitution. You referred earlier to the vesting clause, such a broad vesting of executive power in the president. And so modern debates now are, are primarily just debates about what powers or limits to read into Article 2. So I suppose the question is this, if you had a time machine, would you go back to the convention and tell them that they were making a mistake and not putting more details in? Or do you think they, they did the best job possible in, in framing Article 2? Well, I think they did the best job possible given the constraints they had. But I do think, yeah, it would have been better still, right, if they had included perhaps a a more detailed account of what the president could do in Article 2, so it's not all left to the shadows of of the vesting clause, but also a a bunch of don'ts, right? Article 1, Section 9 has a bunch of don'ts for Congress. You can't do this, you can't do that, and and some don'ts for the states in Article 1, Section 10. There is no such section in in Article 2. But imagine if they had said, you can't wage war, you can't amend statutes, you can't amend the Constitution. I think that would have been a better thing to do. Now, of course, they're not thinking about how their Constitution will be misunderstood in the future, right? They're not, they're not able to foresee all the things that happen. But that's precisely why they sort of have the Bill of Rights, right? And that's by, by why they have Article 1, Section 9. They're not they don't want to leave some of these rights to implication and some of these constraints to implication. They want to make them express. So I think I think I would definitely do that. But I I would do that for Congress and the courts too, right? I would I would say what Congress cannot do as a matter of subject matter, right? They can't regulate education or they can't create a general federal criminal code, et cetera. Because I think that's also useful in understanding the enumeration of powers to Congress. And I would say the same is true for our courts, right? That they it would have been better if they had restricted them in various senses. But they it's just hard for people in their moment to think about the problems that are going to arise a century or two centuries later. So for me, the the most the single most arresting part of the book, it comes almost halfway through. And it's a, a moment that's very relevant to the present moment. And in a few months, we'll be watching either President Trump or or a newly elected President Biden be inaugurated, give the oath of office. And you refer to that the middle of the book, and you you talk about the the oath of office as symbolizing the peaceful democratic transition of power. And then second, and even more significantly, the new president's oath underscores in a public way, a seeming commitment to the rule of law. And then you add, but in no small measure, the ceremony is bunkum. You add then later, when I say that the ceremony is hogwash, I refer to the oath and its beguiling promise. Why is the oath of office why has it become a meaningful ritual, but an empty vow? Well, it's meaningful because there actually is a transfer of power, right? So when they get together, you know, they're, they actually are transferring power. And it's a great thing that there's, you know, not a fight that breaks out or some bullet that whizzes by there, right? There, this happens, and I'm assuming it will happen either a couple of months or four years from now. The oath is a bit of a, a fake because once you understand that the president and his aides believe that presidential power can change over time, it's not clear what they're taking an oath to, right? Because they're not taking an oath to some original conception of the Constitution because they're going to cite all these practices that are, that are at variance with it, that, that violate those original conceptions in a whole host of ways. And they're not even, you know, they're not even really willing to, to even accept the, some modern conception of the presidency because they understand that they can change the Constitution, right? Once you decide that practice makes the Constitution and unmakes the Constitution, you are actually exercising a constitutional right, in a sense, to make and unmake the Constitution, right? So what I say in the book is, of course, members of Congress take an oath to support the Constitution, but they can vote to amend the Constitution, and no one thinks they're violating the Constitution when they do that. And so similarly, presidents, you know, if they ever sort of, you know, think about this, they can tell themselves, well, when I violate the Constitution, I'm really just trying to change it. And of course, practice changes the Constitution. So why am I doing anything wrong as compared to members of Congress who vote to amend it? And so I think given the way the presidency exists today, and given the way the Constitution exists today, if you believe, if this is my point, if you believe in a living Constitution, you can't really get too upset about a presidency that 
slips the bounds of his office or you know rewrites the bounds of his office because you're committed to the idea of informal constitutional change. Why would this one person be the one person who can't do that? Okay, this is the last question then. In light of all of that, is the greater problem here a lack of constraint on the presidency from the rest of government, or is the problem the lack of self-restraint by presidents themselves? Well, I think you're definitely right that Congress, and the book talks about this, Congress has sort of abdicated its checking function for largely for partisan reasons. Republicans are unwilling to check Republican presidents. Democrats are unwilling to check Democratic presidents. And they don't think of the institution. They think of just their policy desires. And that tends to be less true for the older members. They were part of Congress in a different era. But they're also around long enough to know that their authority comes from their institution, not just being an ally of the president. And so they're more willing to stick up to Congress. I make clear in the book that I don't think presidents are evil or that they're particularly power hungry. They face incentives, right? They face incentives. They they have certain desires and they face certain incentives and they take advantage of the levers of power that the Constitution grants them and that their predecessors bequeathed to them. And they do so for largely public-minded reasons, right? I mean, a lot of the things they do, they think are good for the country. People will disagree, but they think it's good for the country. I don't think that they're, you know, totalitarians. But the end result of these incentives and this use of subsequent practice is, A, the presidents can do quite a bit and get away with it. B, whatever we currently think the president can't do, a future president may be able to do based on the accumulation of practice. And so there, you know, the book says, if you believe in a living constitution, presidents are the most powerful agents of constitutional change, particularly with respect to Article 2. And then moreover, there's nothing outside their grasp, right? If you can acquire a war power, a treaty bypass, and then basically set yourself up as a secondary legislature, there's really nothing in Article 2 that isn't susceptible to reinterpretation and reimagination. Well, for people who are interested in learning more about these issues, our guest, Sai Prakash, has written no shortage of articles on these things. His earlier book was titled Imperial from the Beginning, The Constitution of the Original Executive. It came out in 2015. His new book, which we've been discussing, is titled The Living Presidency, an Originalist Argument Against Its Ever-Expanding Powers. He's the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, Sai Prakash. Sai, thanks for joining us. Adam, this has been just a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential.